0: Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the freedom trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 177, The Deleterious Effects of marsh Marshmaiasmata. Hi, I'm Jake. This week, I'm going to do things a little bit differently. Instead of profiling a historic Bostonian or bringing you a dramatic story, I'm going to read a letter. It's not even a long letter. When it was published in a magazine, it took up less than two pages. But in those two pages, there's a lot of action that I find humorous, and there are a lot of details about what Boston's infrastructure and commercial port were like right at the turn of the 19th century. I'm going to read the letter, and along the way I'll pepper in some commentary and some information from other sources. I hope you find this little episode as delightful as I do. But before I talk about the deleterious effects of marsh miasmata, It's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection and our upcoming historical event. My pick for the Boston Book Club this week is a privately published volume celebrating the centennial of the Long Wharf Corporation in 1873. For reasons that'll become clear in just a few moments, I was really searching around to try and come up with a book that we haven't already featured that has something to do with Long Wharf. This is basically the minutes of an annual stockholders' meeting, so a lot of it isn't terribly interesting. There's some early history of Long Wharf, but that isn't even terribly accurate. As I was about to give up on it, I found a gem. Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr., the doctor, not the Supreme Court Justice, wrote and recited a poem for the meeting. I'll include about half of it here. The other half is about the joys of stock ownership. Before reading the poem, Holmes was careful to mention the fact that he was a stockholder in the Wharf Corporation. I have occasionally been invited, Mr. President, to appear at a banquet where I had reason to suspect I was counted on for a few verses, or something of that nature, to justify a committee for sending me an invitation. But tonight, I'm happy to say I'm here in my own right as a proprietor of Boston Pier. I am present as a host and not as a guest. He also mentioned that when he was a young boy in Cambridge, his father dazzled him with tales of the annual stockholders meeting. My father used to bring home accounts of a certain festival he was in the habit of attending, namely, the annual dinner of the proprietors of Long Wharf. These dinners were given, if I remember right, at the Exchange Coffee House, and probably were such as did credit to the establishment, for it was a point to have the first salmon of the season on the table and the accounts brought back from them excited not a little my boyish admiration and appetite. I'm not sure exactly how true that is, but it certainly would have ingratiated him with the corporate officers hosting the evening's festivities. Here are the bits of his poem that are actually about Long Wharf. While I turn my fond glance on the monarch of peers, whose throne has stood firm through his eight score of years, my thought travels backward and reaches the day when they drove the first pile on the edge of the bay. See the joiner, the shipwright, the smith from his forge, the redcoat who shoulders his gun for King George, the shopman, the prentice, the boys from the lane, the parson, the doctor with gold-headed cane. Come trooping down King Street where now may be seen the pulleys and ropes of a mighty machine. The weight rises slowly, it drops with a thud, and lo, the great timber sinks deep in the mud. They are gone, the stout craftsmen that hammered the piles, and the square-toed old boys in the three-cornered tiles, the breeches the buckles have faded from view, and the parson's white wig and ribbon-tied queue. The redcoats have vanished, the last grenadier stepped into the boat from the end of our pier. They found that our hills were not easy to climb, and the order came, countermarch, double quick time. They are gone, friend and foe, anchored fast at the pier, whence no vessel brings back its pale passengers here. But their wharf, like a lily, still floats on the flood, Its breast in the sunshine, its roots in the mud. We drink to thy past and thy future today, Strong right arm of Boston, stretched out o'er the bay. May the winds waft the wealth of all nations to thee, And thy dividends flow like the waves of the sea. Luckily, the entire volume is available as a free ebook, so you can have a chuckle at old Oliver Wendell's expense if you'd like. And I'm happy to note that we actually do have an upcoming event to feature this week. Just last week, I said that our upcoming event segment would be cancelled for the duration of our social distancing experiment. But now a handful of groups have begun scheduling online, virtual, COVID-19 safe events. The first of these that I'd like to feature is a Wikipedia edit-a-thon. On Tuesday, March 31st, Simmons University is hosting an online meetup to encourage people to research, create, and expand Wikipedia entries relating to women's history. A number of factors contribute to underrepresentation of women's history on the platform, including the fact that only 10% of Wikipedians are women, meaning that the unconscious biases of male editors can have an outsized effect. Not only that, but female subjects often face a notability gap, where articles about even historically significant women are rejected as not being notable enough to justify an article. This gathering will attempt to offset some of that imbalance by focusing on the women who fought for suffrage and civil rights. Here's how their meetup page describes it. We are co-hosting an edit-a-thon to help make women's history more visible on Wikipedia. It's the second event in our Digitizing Women's History series, marking the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment. Our thematic focus is on activists, especially suffrage and civil rights activists who were or are women of color. The event is open to all. Join us whether or not you've ever edited Wikipedia entries before. Keep an eye on the meetup page as the organizers add suggested topics, which include specific women whose entries need to be expanded or created, as well as organizations and events you can write about. It includes tips on how to write for Wikipedia, potential sources to use for research, and details on how to connect to a Zoom video chat with two mentors during the edit-a-thon. We'll link to the page, as well as to the ebook of the Long Wharf Centennial event and this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 177. Before I move on, I'd like to say a big thank you to Kathy M., our latest sponsor on Patreon. Kathy and all our supporters make it possible for Nikki and me to create this podcast. Their support of $2, $5, or even $10 a month means that we can pay for podcast media hosting, website hosting and security, and online audio processing tools to make sure we sound our best. If you're not yet supporting the show and you're curious... Check out our support tiers and rewards at patreon.com slash hubhistory, or by visiting hubhistory.com and clicking on the support link. Thanks again to all our new and existing supporters. Now it's time for this week's main topic. Like I said, our show this week is all based on one brief letter that was only about two pages long. This letter appeared in Volume 2, Part 2 of the Memoirs of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, published in 1804. The American Academy of Arts and Sciences is a learned society that was founded by John Adams in 1780 and still continues today. After studying the American Philosophical Society based in Philadelphia during his years in the Continental Congress, then studying the academic societies of Europe during his time as a diplomat, Adams became convinced that New England needed its own similar organization. He publicly floated the idea during a dinner at Harvard in August of 1779, a bill was introduced into the Massachusetts legislature in December, and it was passed in May of 1780. The organization was then chartered to promote and encourage the knowledge of the antiquities of America and of the natural history of the country and to determine the uses to which the various natural productions of the country may be applied. To promote and encourage medical discoveries, mathematical disquisitions, philosophical inquiries and experiments, astronomical, meteorological, and geographical observations, and improvements in agriculture, arts, manufactures, and commerce, and, in fine, to cultivate every art and science which may tend to advance the interest, honor, dignity, and happiness of a free, independent, and virtuous people. The Academy's memoirs, which would later be published as The Proceedings, and in the 20th century as Daedalus, were first published in 1785, allowing learned authors to put papers recording their scientific observations and advances in front of like-minded readers. One of these observations was an account of the deleterious effects of mephitic air or marsh miasmata experienced by three men July 27, 1797, in a well on the Boston Pier. In a letter to the Reverend Joseph Willard, President of the University in Cambridge and Vice President of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, by Reverend John Lathrop. Okay, so who are the players involved? The letter writer, Reverend John Lathrop, sometimes spelled Lothrop, was the pastor of Second Church. Second Church was a wooden congregational meeting house located in North Square in the North End, almost across the street from Paul Revere's house. Over the century or so before Lathrop took the pulpit, it was noteworthy as the congregation of the Mather family. Increase, Cotton, and Samuel Mather, had all led the church in years past. Lathrop took over during interesting times. His leadership began in 1768, just as the British army landed in Boston and began a tense occupation. During the years up to and during the Revolution, Lathrop had a reputation as a patriot. One of his most famous sermons was titled, Innocent Blood Crying to God from the Streets of Boston, a sermon occasioned by the horrid murder of Messrs. Samuel Gray, Samuel Maverick, James Caldwell, and Crispus Attucks, with Patrick Carr since dead and Christopher Monk judged irrecoverable, and several other badly wounded by a party of troops under the command of Captain Preston on the 5th of March, 1770, and preached the Lord's Day following. In part because of his reputation as a supporter of the Patriot cause, British regulars tore down his church building during the hard winter of the 1775-1776 occupation of Boston. The soldiers burned his church for firewood. After the war, Lathrop remained in Boston, and he remained at the pulpit of the reconstructed Second Church until his death in 1816. The recipient of our letter was another congregational minister. Widely known as an academic and polymath, Joseph Willard was one of the charter members of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in 1780, while Lathrop wasn't inducted until a decade later, in 1790. After receiving his education at Harvard and preaching at the First Congregational Church in Beverly, Willard was serving as the president of Harvard at the time her letter was written, a post he held from 1781 to 1804. In the introduction to the letter, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences mentions the Boston Pier. This is a reference to Long Wharf, which was proposed in 1710 and built between 1711 and 1715. At that time, the shoreline was much further inland, as you can see from any historic map, or by looking down at the ground the next time you walk past the statue of Sam Adams at Faneuil Hall a line inscribed on the sidewalk near the statue traces the 18th century shoreline of the Shawmut Peninsula, at a time when waves would have lapped almost at the foundation of today's city hall. Having by that time long been the most important port in British North America, there were already plenty of wharves along Boston Harbor. However, the new wharf that was constructed was massive, much longer than its predecessors. It stretched a third of a mile from the foot of King Street, today's State Street, out into the harbor to reach deep water and allow larger vessels to dock, thus the name Long Wharf. It was built of stone and wood and landfill, and it incorporated part of the ruins of the Barricado. The Barricado was a defensive wall that had been built around the commercial wharves in the harbor when Boston feared an attack by the Dutch in 1672. It was a 2,200-foot semicircle, standing 15 feet above the water and measuring 20 feet across at the top. It had gaps that a ship could pass through slowly and carefully, but were small enough to keep out the powerful Dutch fleet. When the expected attack didn't come to pass, the barricade was left to slowly rot and fall apart. Lathrop's letter will also mention Minot's t Wharf. As the name suggests, this smaller wharf stuck off the side of Long Wharf near the seaward end, making a small T. There are a few warehouses on the T wharf, and it also stood far enough out into the harbor to be accessible by deepwater vessels. Now let's hear what the Reverend Lathrop has to say about an attempt to dig a well on Long Wharf. This well, like that which was dug some years ago on Minot's T, a part of the same pier commonly called the Long Wharf, is wholly surrounded with salt water, against which it is secured with clay and strong boxes. The workmen had advanced about 27 feet before they experienced any inconveniency from bad air. The several strata through which they passed for good water were, first, about 15 feet consisting of the materials of the pier, second, about 14 feet consisting of black mud, clay, sand, and the heterogeneous substances which had been deposited by the sea. Third, about four and a half feet, consisting of very black mud, intermixed with the unconsumed roots of marsh grass, shells, and other marine productions. After passing this stratum, the workmen began to bore. Fourth, about 30 feet of light blue clay. Fifth, about 23 feet of clay mixed with sand. Sixth, about 7 feet of hard and dark blue clay. Seventh, about three feet of clay, stones, and slate. On the last stratum, the workmen used the drill, and having broke through the crust of slate, the water gushed up with great force and rose to about 12 feet from the surface, where it has stood ever since. So if it's not clear from the 18th century language of that description, a work crew was digging a freshwater well for drinking water on Long Wharf, a spot that's completely surrounded by the salt water of Boston Harbor. Digging by hand, they went down about 33 feet below the level of the pier, though the first 15 feet was just digging back out the fill that had been dumped in to create the wharf in the first place. Because they were well over 20 feet below water level, something like a caisson or retaining wall was built around their pit and sealed watertight with clay. Personally, if I was 30 feet in a hole under the harbor, I'd want a bit more protection from the sea than that, but that's how they did things back then. After the first 33 feet, the crew switched from digging to boring. At the time, a shallow well might be created by driving a metal pipe with a pointed, perforated well point into the ground, but this well went much too deep for that. From the bottom of the 33-foot pit, they drilled down over 60 more feet. The inaugural 1914 edition of the Journal of the Boston Society of Civil Engineers quotes a report from the proprietors of Long Wharf that goes into a bit more detail about how this part of the operation was carried out. At about 30 feet below the surface, they hit a dense layer of clay. A hand-dug shaft about four feet in diameter was sunk in the clay and lined with a stone curb to protect the well shaft, much like the wells you'd see in a movie. Then, they began to bore. We first made a hole in the bottom of the curb ten and a half inches in diameter, then bored into the clay 8 feet with an auger 10 inches in diameter. We then took a log 15 feet long and 10 inches in diameter with a hole through it of 5 inches in diameter, which we put into the hole at the bottom of the curb and drove it with a large iron weight 13 feet, leaving 2 feet above the bottom of the curb. Then with an auger 5 inches in diameter, bored through the hollow log 35 feet from the bottom of the well through pure clay. We then came to sand, from which we had a small quantity of fresh water. Through this sand, we bored about 23 feet and then came to pure clay. We bored through this clay about 7 feet and came to a hard pan of slate, and on taking up the auger, found the water to rise fast. We then put a tube four and a half inches in diameter, into the whole we'd bored, which hollow tube extends from the bottom of the well to the hard pan of slate. We then fixed a drill on the shank of the auger and let it down through the hollow tube and drilled into the hard pan bottom about three feet. We found we had struck a spring affording an abundant supply of water. Finally, almost a hundred feet below the surface of Long Wharf, the crew hit fresh water. The pit they dug then became a reservoir, making it easy to access the water supply. The description says that the water flowed up the shaft and filled the reservoir to within 12 feet of the original surface. That means that they created an artesian well, since the water was under enough pressure to rise 84 feet above the level where it was originally found. To understand how an artesian well works, I dug up an article from the National Groundwater Association. It says that the work crew must have hit a layer of CONFINED GROUNDWATER Groundwater separated from atmospheric pressure by relatively impermeable material is termed CONFINED GROUNDWATER. When such zones are penetrated by wells, the water rises above the point at which it was first found, because a confined aquifer is under pressure exceeding that of the atmospheric pressure. The potentiometric surface is an imaginary surface above the aquifer to which the water from an artesian aquifer would rise in a pipe. The term potentiometric surface means head or potential indicating surface. In the early development of some artesian basins, the potentiometric surface was above the land surface, giving rise to a flowing artesian well. More commonly, the potentiometric surface is above the top of the artesian aquifer, but below the land surface. This type of well is referred to simply as an artesian well. Twelve feet below the surface of the reservoir, the water stood at the potentiometric surface of the aquifer. We'll include a diagram from this article in the show notes to illustrate how a confined aquifer works. Now, why go to all this trouble to dig a hundred feet into the harbor to create a freshwater well? First of all, this was a period during which Boston was starting to grow rapidly, and our water supply was just not keeping up. Beginning in the late 18th century, but especially in the first half of the 19th century. Boston was desperate for sources of clean drinking water. The few wells and natural springs in town couldn't keep up with demand, and they eventually became polluted anyway. So many residents relied on rainwater captured in cisterns. Until the Cassituate Reservoir and Aqueduct opened in 1848, demand for drinking water always outstripped supply. On top of the underlying demand for drinking water in Boston, there was a twofold need for water at Long Wharf in particular. First, it was by far the largest and busiest pier in what was then one of the busiest ports in North America, though Boston would soon cede that honor to New York and Philadelphia. The ships landing there needed large stores of fresh water to keep the crews alive as they crossed the Atlantic. Second, there was the threat of fire. The wharves, the ships at the wharves, and the large shops and warehouses on and around the wharves were all vulnerable to fire. The Great Boston Fire of 1760 damaged the warehouses at the foot of Long Wharf and narrowly missed burning the wharf itself. In more recent memory, town records show a reimbursement to Timothy Pease of Engine No. 5 for dowsing a fire on Long Wharf in 1790. They also record a fire that began in the rope walks near Milk Street in 1794, which also menaced the docks. Though the well on Long Wharf was a success, it wasn't the only way the proprietors of Long Wharf planned to increase their supply of fresh water in 1797. Salem minister and diarist William Bentley recorded a trip to Boston in September 1797 to watch the launch of the USS Constitution. As we've discussed on the show before, the launch was unsuccessful, as was the second one, and the frigate only reached the water on the third attempt. That didn't stop Bentley from enjoying his time in Boston, and one of his stops was at, as he said, the Long Wharf, which has now another pump, and the old wharves are repaired and have very large stores upon them. What was this second pump on Long Wharf? On January 4th of that year, the proprietors of Long Wharf had appeared at a meeting of the town selectmen and requested permission to open the streets for the purpose of carrying water from some spring near Water Street to the wharf. After hearing from a subcommittee and considering the options, the selectmen made their response on April 28th. The proprietors of Boston Pier, having applied to the selectmen for liberty to break up the streets in said town in order to lay pipes for the purpose of conducting fresh water from some spring in Water Street to the said wharf, The selectmen took the same into consideration, and conceiving it may be of advantage to the interest of the town in general in case of fire, voted that the said proprietors have liberty as they request to open the streets, provided that previous to their undertaking it, they enter into an agreement in writing, so to conduct the opening as to be least obstructive to the business of the town. To put the streets which they shall so open in good repair to the satisfaction of the selectmen, and from time to time hereafter to make all repairs to the same which shall become necessary to be made in consequence of such opening. That the pumper pumps to be placed on said wharfs shall at all times in the day be free for the use of all the inhabitants of the town improving the stores or laboring on said wharf. And further, that if in any future period the town or any of the inhabitants thereof for the general benefit of the town shall think proper to place one or more pumps in State Street, they shall have the privilege of receiving water from or through the said pipes. Today we'd call that a public-private partnership. The private company that owned the wharf was allowed to tap into the common property of the town's water, tear up the town's streets, and as long as they fixed things up when they were done, they were allowed to profit from the sales of the water that resulted. All the city asked for was maintenance, access to the water in case of fire, and for dock workers to be able to take a drink when they were thirsty. Our letter from Lathrop continues, Upon entering the third stratum, consisting of black mud intermixed with the roots of marsh grass, shells, and other marine productions, the workmen perceived an uncommon fetid smell. Faintness and difficulty of breathing succeeded, and to so great a degree that they left the well and could not be persuaded to go down again. Some hours later, a Mr. Tylston, the master workman, who was not present when the laborers experienced a difficulty of breathing, and left the well, having occasion to measure the width at the bottom in order to fix a curb, insisted on being let down. He had been at the bottom but a few minutes before he was seen to fall, and remain without motion. Quick update from the editing room. In the next sentence, I say the word soldiers, but I should have said the word workers. Sorry about that. Just to recap, the soldiers dug down into a layer of soil about 30 feet below the surface that was made up of swampy materials that hadn't fully rotted. That's not completely unexpected, as it was hermetically sealed and without air or microbes, the process of decomposition would be suspended. There was a terrible smell at the bottom of the pit, and the workers had trouble breathing and began to feel dizzy. They climbed out, and they stayed out. Then, since either nobody warned him, or he didn't listen, our Mr. Tyleston went down into the pit to take some measurements, and he suddenly fell face-first on the ground, and nobody was sure if he was alive or dead. At this point in the letter, despite having not read it for, I'm sure, 30 years, I was immediately reminded of Little House on the Prairie. Except for a spate of articles and podcasts in the past couple of years that exposed author Laura Ingalls Wilder as a supporter of far-right political causes, I haven't thought of the Little House books since my father used to read them to me at bedtime. Nevertheless, I was immediately reminded of a scene in the book that I've since learned is from Chapter 12. A neighbor named Mr. Scott is helping Ma and Pa dig a new well, when the neighbor suddenly collapses at the bottom of the well. Pa immediately jumps down into the well, ties a rope around Mr. Scott, and then he and Ma haul him up to the surface. This part of the letter really strikes my fancy because before long, the laborers would try something just like Pa Ingalls did. Lathrop recalls, His condition alarmed the other workmen, and one of them, whose name was Bunting, was let down with a small rope in his hand to pass about the body of Mr. Tyleston in order to pull him up. But before Bunting was able to make the rope fast, he fell. Although the danger was now known to be very great, the anxiety to save the two men who were in a dying condition was superior to the danger. A Mr. Hancock, contrary to the advice of all present, went down, but no sooner reached the bottom than he fell with the other two. There were now three men lying apparently dead on the bottom of the well. While Pa Ingalls might have scrambled right back out of the well after tying a rope around Mr. Scott, things didn't work out as, uh, well for Bunting or Hancock. A seafaring man whose name is Clark came to the place at that moment, and would have immediately gone down had not Mr. Jonathan Balch, who furnished me with the materials for this communication, prevented him, until by an experiment, which he had tried on like occasion, he might lessen the danger. This is the point in Little House on the Prairie when Pa fixes everything by sending a little cloth bag of gunpowder down into the well and lighting it off. I was never quite clear as a kid whether this was supposed to burn off all the bad well gas, or whether the explosion was supposed to drive all the well gas up and out and let clean air in. But perhaps the next passage from our letter can shed some light on the subject. A common mat, such as merchants' wrap-about bales of goods, was fastened to a rope and let down. By working this mat very quick up and down, the heavy mephitic air was so mixed and diluted with the more pure air in the upper part of the well that the men who lay in a dying condition at the bottom experienced the benefit. In a little time, they showed appearances of life by moving their limbs. Mr. Clark was then let down, and by taking one after another in his arms, he raised them from the horrible pit in which they must have soon died, had not timely aid been afforded them. As a side note, Jonathan Balsch was a pump and block maker, so it's likely that he was deeply involved in creating this new well. And he would have understood how to apply the principles of a pump to circulate the air in the well. So, before Mr. Clark pulled a paw, somebody's stiff mat was lowered into the hole. I couldn't find a source to tell us what sort of material this mat would have been made of. Then it was pumped up and down vigorously. Much like a southern lady fanning herself in church, the mat got the air in the pit moving and allowed some fresh air to mix in with the so called mephitic air. Props to Mr. Clark, though, for climbing out of a 30 foot pit while carrying three grown men. That'd be a pretty impressive accomplishment, even without the marsh gas. Today, we know that marsh gas is a mix of methane, carbon dioxide, and sometimes hydrogen sulfide, and it forms when a large volume of vegetative material decomposes in an anaerobic environment, which is exactly what John Lathrop described. Though he didn't have the terminology to know the source of his mephitic air, Lathrop knew that the stratum of non-decomposed swamp material was to blame for the debilitating delay. The stratum of black mud, intermixed with the roots of grass and the relics of the sea 12 or 14 feet below the present flats, is a curious article in natural history, and affords evidence that the peninsula of Boston is now very different in its dimensions from what it was many ages ago. With great esteem, I am, sir, your most humble servant, John Lathrop. Lathrop's supposition that the stratum of mud and swamp grass meant that the peninsula of Boston had changed over time was exactly correct. Of course, over the past 400 years, Bostonians have deliberately changed the shape of the shawmut Peninsula, filling in the mill pond, extending the wharves, and building a neighborhood where the tidal back bay used to be. But long before European colonizers landed on these shores and began altering the shoreline, nature was doing the same thing. During the last ice age about 10,000 years ago, much of what we now know as Boston Harbor was a low, gradually sloping valley. The Mystic and Charles Rivers flowed much further into the basin than they do now, and the Boston Harbor Islands were a series of hills breaking up the grassy valley. The shoreline back then may have been as far out in the harbor as Boston Light, which is now a lonely beacon miles from the downtown shoreline. As the glaciers receded and global sea levels rose, sediments buried the old tidal marshes which were now on the bottom of the harbor, preserving them in an oxygen-free environment where the swamp gas formed and lay waiting. So how did everything turn out with the new well? Well, give the last word to the proprietors of Long Wharf, as quoted by the Journal of the Boston Society of Civil Engineers in 1914. The well at Long Wharf was began Monday, June 12th, 1797. Began to bore for a spring Monday, September 4th. Got to the spring Wednesday, September 6th at 11 o'clock. Put in the pump Saturday, September 9th at 12 o'clock. Began to receive pay for water Monday, September 11th, being just three months from the time it was begun. The engineers included a note for the modern reader who might wonder what happened to the well at Long Wharf. This well, which was situated about 150 feet east of Atlantic Avenue, was cut off by the East Boston Tunnel. To learn more about the marsh bias and the well on Long Wharf, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 177. We'll have a link to the original article in the Proceedings of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. We'll also link to the Journal of the Boston Society of Civil Engineers the article about artesian wells from the National Groundwater Association, and to Reverend William Bentley's diary. We'll also have a link to city records showing how water was piped from Water Street to the docks. To show how Long Wharf was the defining characteristic of the 18th and early 19th century Boston, I'll include a number of historic maps and illustrations as well. And of course, we'll have links to information about our upcoming virtual event and the centennial of the Long Wharf Corporation this week's Boston Book Club pick. If you'd like to leave us some feedback, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. We're in all your favorite podcasting apps including Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, TuneIn Radio, and many more. You can stream the show every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on bostonfreeradio.com. You can also listen on your favorite smart speaker. If you have an Amazon Echo, just say, Alexa, play the Hub History Podcast. Or if you have a Google Home, you can say, Hey Google, play the Hub History Podcast. Sure. Playing the latest episode of Hub History, our favorite stories from Boston history. Apple Podcasts remains the most popular podcast app. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a brief review. If you do, drop us a line and we'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of appreciation. That's all for now. Stay safe out there, listeners.